As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. This Athletic podcast is brought to you with the square ball. Hello, I'm Dan Moylan and from The Athletic is Phil Hay. Hello. From the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Right now, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. Perfect present for the football fan in your life this Christmas. You can get all the great analysis on there. Can you do some of that, Phil? Some great analysis? Great analysis. And guess what my family will all be getting for Christmas as well? You mean you haven't got them all, the subscriptions already? Uh, They've run out after last year. So yes, it'll be uh, on mass again. There are in-depth features from the very best football writers around and you can get ad-free versions of all the podcasts, including this one. Perfect gift for yourself and somebody else. So head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and sign up. Right, Phil, Chelsea, second best for the first time this season, were we, do you think? Definitely. And and I agree for the first time this season, not the first game that Leeds have deserved to lose. I think they probably didn't deserve anything from the Leicester game and and arguably down at Palace as well. But definitely the first game in which you've looked at another side and felt that it became more and more difficult to compete with them um, as as the 90 minutes went on, I mean, I'm I'm loath to give Lampard much credit. And I know you two got tetchy when I uttered the words, to be fair to Frank Lampard last week, but they do look like a very complete side. And there's been masses of investment down there over the summer. They've got Werner, they've, they've got Havertz. All the way through the team, they, they look strong. And I think even at centre-back, where we kind of wondered whether pace might be an issue for them. And, and, and actually, that was where Bamford's goal came from. Even there, they were pretty strong and pretty solid. And they essentially had strengths in the areas where Leeds like to be strong themselves. So Kante did a very good job on Phillips and ultimately won won a lot of what was going on in, in midfield. And crucially, particularly on the right-hand side, I thought with Reese James, Leeds were very, uh, Chelsea, sorry, were, were very good um, at full-back. They, they were strong on the right, not quite so strong on the left, but still very, very tidy with Chilwell. And it meant that the areas in which Leeds normally do damage and certainly try to do damage, they, they weren't able to, and, and I thought 3-1 on the night was probably a pretty fair reflection of the game as a whole. And, and even though the, there were periods, you know, one all, there was that great chance for Rafinha at 2-1. There were there were opportunities for Leeds to score. There was the the, the issue with the, the tackle on Paveda, which, you know, had he gone down, I think would have been a penalty. It's clutching at straws slightly to say that that was anything other than a, a home win. It is encouraging, though, that games still do turn on fine margins. Like we take their first goal, the one that Giroud scored, had Jack Harrison tracked his runner or just been slightly more awake and alive to the fact that that threat was there down Chelsea's right-hand side. Maybe we get away with that on another day, but against such quality players, it sometimes tells, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a bit of a catalogue of errors there. There was Llorente not following Giroud to the near post, although it was quite interesting really that Bielsa had spoken beforehand about um, Llorente coming back from his, his groin injury and, and saying that he was reluctant to rush him and in, in ideal circumstances he would have 23's games. But... Also adding the caveat that sometimes you don't have the luxury of doing that. And and as it turned out, you know, Robin Koch going off very early at Stamford Bridge, Llorente was into what was a, a really difficult game for, for a centre-back up against Giroud. But it was a little bit like the third Palace goal um, down at Selhurst Park. Again, Hilda Costa 
just not quite tracking Van Aanholt um, on the left-hand side and, and giving him that little bit of space to cross. And, you know, evidently with that goal, there was a big deflection, and a little bit of luck involved. But it was the same thing. It was just the overlap and, and Harrison caught a little bit short as Rhys James went past him. And, and that is how it is with the Bielsa team. It, it, it all needs to work and it all needs to be bang on on the money. And he, he was talking at his press conference this week about the physicality of the game and saying... According to the stats and the data, Chelsea's output increased by about 20% on the night, which I think Bielsa saw as, as quite a compliment to Leeds. The, the fact that it had to improve like that in order for Chelsea to dominate in the way that they did. And he said himself, physically, we weren't able to dominate as we normally do. And, and there were technical aspects as well, which meant that, that Chelsea, you know, Chelsea got the edge, particularly in the second half when it when it did feel as if it, it was only going one way. But like you say, there, there were moments and there were there were points at which Leeds could have made the game different, particularly that Rafina chance. And I think I, I think there is a discussion to be had around the, the Paveda penalty incident as well. It's not you know, he didn't go down and, and you can see why the referee played advantage. But I think compared to some other incidents this season, that was quite a dicey moment for Chelsea. Let's pull on a few of these threads then. We'll we'll deal with the injury and the impact going forward in part three of the podcast towards the end. But let's look at the first Cox injury in the context of this game and the moments that turned the game. How important a moment was that then coming as it did in the first 10 minutes? It's difficult to say. I mean, my gut feeling is that it would have been better with Cox and Cooper paired together, given that that has been the the established partnership in the main and and there must be some understanding developing there. But, you know, he was injured at at the very first corner of the game, which was a corner won by Giroud um, near post header and and actually a, a really good early chance. And, you know, set pieces and corners in particular were problematic right the way through. There was the goal from Zuma in the second half, but actually an awful lot of them led to opportunities. There was the one that Werner somehow missed from under the crossbar after keeping out that that header from Giroud. There was another free header for Giroud straight after Zuma's goal, which really he should have scored from. You know, that is still a weakness in Bielsa's team. And there are issues with the organisation there, which I think we, we, could, we could go into in a bit more detail. So... Yeah, it wasn't ideal and I think it was bringing in a player in Urenti who hadn't played for Leeds since his transfer um, from Sociedad who clearly wasn't 100% and, and wasn't as sharp as, as he might have been but I think on the balance of play it, it felt like it was going to be Chelsea's night regardless. Just on the corners, do we practice them? I know that's a really basic question but we don't seem to be very good at them at either end. They do. How much they practice them, I can't say. And, you know, what sort of percentage of um, of training it amounts to, I really don't know. Whenever we ask Bielsa, he says, we absolutely do. And we've been working on them for two and a half years. For what it's worth, I don't think there's a lack of organisation when it comes to the corners. It might look at, look that way at plain sight, but it's a bit more complex than that. And it's a bit more nuanced. I mean, a lot of clubs these days use a, a zonal marking system uh, when it comes to set pieces. And obviously with Bielsa, it's entirely man for man, with the exception of Bamford, who who operates as the kind of free man at the near post and, and has that zone covered. But if you look at the setup that Bielsa has for a corner, he's got a jumper out on the byline as close as possible to the, the corner taker. So on Saturday, it was it was mostly Rafinha. Bit of a distraction, bit of a diversion, a, a bit of a blocking tool, although if you watch the corners back, it, it very rarely actually has that effect. And in the box, you tend to have one man extra. So if Chelsea have five players in the box, Leeds will have six, of which Bamford is, is the free man and everybody else goes goes man to man. The issue is if teams are clever and they scramble effectively or if they're good at blocking um, defenders or, or creating a, a bit of chaos in the box, it can be very difficult to stay tight. Um, it can be very difficult to stay properly man for man. So you find in an instance like Zuma scoring and, and likewise with Van Dijk at Anfield on the first day of the season, if you lose somebody, it's a free header. Um, so as Koch got blocked off for the, um, the Van Dijk header, there was no way of anybody else tracking him. Once Cooper went down, and I know there was an argument about whether he'd been tripped by Giroud, but once he went down, there was nobody marking Zuma. Um, and it was a, a easy, easy header for somebody who's very good in the air and, and very dangerous from, from set pieces. So I think it's not a case of Leeds not knowing what they're doing. They know what they're doing and they know the plan of attack. It just doesn't seem to be working particularly effectively. But presumably there's no prospect of, of it changing. No, I mean, we, we've spoken to Bielsa about zonal marking before and he's just said outright, that's just not what I do. It's not really what I understand or it's not how I want us to play. And, and obviously in open play as well, it, it is man-to-man in the strictest sense. You know, not even just kind of zonal man-to-man. It is the case that fullbacks will follow wingers all over the field. Centre-backs will follow their, their forward 
deep to halfway, even though it leaves um, leaves gaps open at the back. And it can actually be very effective because you find that, whereas in zonal systems, if somebody gets out of position, you've got gaps that opposition players can run into. You should always have a Leeds player tracking everybody. So it's it's not quite as easy to take up those areas of space and, and to do damage from them. But it does mean that in in a, a man-to-man marking system from a corner, if there's the slightest lapse, and and you know, I would suggest that people look at the the Rich, uh, Rich header that was disallowed at Goodison Park. Again, it's just a yard or a couple of feet on Alioski that Richarlison finds, and because of that, he's in a position to head in Rodriguez's corner, and there is nobody else who can help because everybody else, with the exception of Bamford, is tracking a player who they are under orders to follow. And with Bamford, because he's at the near post. There's only a certain zone that, that he can occupy anyway. So the set piece record, and I was, you know, I was working it out, it's been about 17% of goals from corners under Bielsa conceded, and about 44% of the goals in total from set pieces, or that does um include penalties as well. It is that kind of weakness in that record is really a product of of the way they set up and, and the way that Bielsa wants them to man mark. The floor in the man marking system has been highlighted by, I think, in interviews by opposition coaches, maybe players as well, in that if they win their individual battles, no matter where they are on the pitch, then it can leave Leeds susceptible because there's a great big space in behind that player to play in. Well, look, for example, at the way that Chelsea played through the press on Saturday. And I think they're, it, it, you very rarely see teams cope with it as well as they did. And and they did seem to have the confidence to to say, we're good enough to, to work this out and, and to play through it. And they were very mobile in, in midfield. They've got um they've got some very good dribblers, um guys who are, who are very comfortable in possession. And that was one of the reasons. I mean, Leeds struggled to play out in the way that they liked it from the back too. Chelsea were pretty brave with with how they were willing to press and how high up the field they were willing to position themselves. But the bigger problem was the fact that they they didn't feel the pinch in the way that teams often do. Um, like Arsenal, for example, who just could not get past that high press at, at Ellen Road, it was completely different for, for Chelsea. And, you know, Bielsa said himself, there wasn't enough pressure on Kante, there wasn't enough pressure on Thiago Silva or on Chilwell or, or on Rhys James. And, and because of that, it, it gave them a bit more comfort and a bit more time on the ball. Well, that's the bad stuff. We've got that out of the way. Let's not just concentrate on that because there was some good stuff in there as well. The ball from Calvin Phillips to Patrick Bamford and Bamford's composure in front of goal. I'm really, really impressed with him this season. And I think he's he's probably... He's answered a lot of his critics, particularly from last season, which, let's be fair, were deserved with some of the chances that he missed. But to have stepped up in the way that he has, full credit to him. That was a terrific finish, I thought. It, it's made to look easy because in the end, you're sticking the ball into an open net. And Chelsea didn't help themselves. Zuma got sucked out too wide and, and Mendy just dithered at the point where he really needed to come and clear the ball out. But Bamford was had a lot of awareness to realise where both players were and, and to take the ball past Mendy and, and stick it in. I mean, it was a kind of one, one hit finish once he was round Mendy. He had to hit it and he had to be very, very accurate with it inside the, the near post. But yeah, fantastic ball from Phillips as well. And and at that point, you wondered whether Phillips was going to have another game like he did at, at Goodison and was going to spread the ball around in, in the way that he had and in the way that had really hurt Everton. But in the end, Kante was pretty much able to negate him and, and to dominate the game in that key area in the middle. But I, I thought it was I thought it was a terrific goal. And I think, again, you're looking at a game where Leeds could have scored two or three times. It's We haven't yet hit a point, I don't think, this season where you've come through a game and thought, did it ever look like Leeds were going to get a goal? I know against Wolves it was it was hard work. They were they were very, very good defensively. But there is always that lingering threat there. And I think that encourages you to think that that they are going to get enough wins, enough points to to stay up. Just going back to Jack Harrison, we we commented that he's not been in his greatest form the last few games either. How much pressure is there on him now? Is is he ever likely to be dropped, do you think, under Bielsa? Yeah, I mean I don't think anybody's Completely immune from that. I don't think. I don't think he's been terrible. I, I don't know if you disagree with that. No, I don't no. Know, I think no. he's done. I, well. I think. He, I think he's done well. But he he hasn't been exceptional, and he hasn't been electric. And and when it comes to goals and assists and everything else, he had that terrific finish at at Anfield, and obviously a lovely ball for Bamford down at Bramall Lane as well. But it's felt over the past three or four weeks like it's been difficult for him to get much traction on the left hand side. I have to say, I thought Reese James was incredibly strong in that position, and very, very composed as well. It's, it must be quite easy to panic against Leeds when you, you have them running at you and you have them trying to, to stretch you. But there was one moment right at the end of the game where Paveda tried to go around James and James just stood up to him and not quite laughed him off, but saw him off. He, he didn't look like he, he was ruffled at any point on Saturday. So there is pressure there, but it feels to me 
like with Rafina, Bielsa is more likely to play him on the right than he is on the left-hand side. And it feels as well with Paveda as if Paveda is more of an impact player for him at the moment, a player that he goes to off the bench as opposed to start. And it's not to say that that might not change, but I think looking at Paveda's game at the moment, he looks like the sort of player that you want to come on with half an hour to go because he is very, very good at going at tiring defences and, and causing problems out wide. So I don't think that Bielsa will see a big issue with Harrison. I might be wrong. I mean, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but it kind of goes back to the, you know, the questions that were always asked about Bamford and, and his finishing even though he was missing chances, even though he should have been scoring more goals, the reality was that Bielsa felt that the system was better with him in it. And I, and I always get the feeling that the same applies to Harrison as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It just feels like he's just gone slightly off the boil, that's all. He's maybe just not quite on the top of his game at the minute. You are right to highlight as well how good James was. He was. I have seen him play a few times and I've always been quite impressed with him, but it, seeing him and knowing the way we normally play against teams, he looked incredible. very, very very composed, very fast with the physicality of a centre-back playing, but the pace and the sort of movement and dribbling of a full-back, it was, it was kind of, he looked almost impossible to beat. Yeah, he was somebody who Otter was thinking about going for had they been promoted at the end of the 18-19 season. He was somebody who was on the list and, and clearly when Leeds didn't go up, it, it wasn't doable that one because James was starting to move into Premier League football as opposed to uh, to loans in the championship or, or down in in the football league, but yeah, I, I think I think that's true. And I actually thought Harrison had a, a decent game at Everton. Obviously, hit the post at one stage, and again, if if he heads that in, you you have a slightly different complexion as to how it's it's going for him. But I think if you look at the creativity at the moment, it doesn't quite feel like it's there in in the way that it should be. And I have to say as well, I, I sort of sympathise when suddenly somebody like Rafinha comes into the team who just looks so electric and and so lively and not perfect, you know, not perfect performances, but does seem as if he could create something out of out of nothing, which is not really the mould of a Bielsa player. Bielsa isn't so interested in, in players who have that little moment of magic. He much prefers players who, who are in the process. He's got great decision making from what I can see, like his choice of, of passing, like that ball that he played at Everton that went, that he zipped, he almost, he, he sort of drove it like a golf shot across the edge of the area. I think it went to click, didn't it? Somewhere on the edge. I, I love that. Just, he's got that vision to make that pass. He sees things very quickly, doesn't he? As, as plays unfolding and things, a lesser player would have to have another few touches and look up. He just, he instantly knows what to do and it's, um, yeah, he does he does create some exciting moments, even if he's maybe not fully integrated in Bielsa's system yet. There was a crossfield ball at Villa and I was joking with somebody in the press box saying it was one of the first things Rafinha had done and it was beautifully, beautifully balanced, beautifully placed. And I, I was saying to somebody, you're better off saving that for when it's 0-0 against Wolves in the night when Bamford's banging a hat-trick because people are not going to remember it or, or look at it. But yeah, I think technically he looks, I mean, he's obviously quick and he's obviously got a lot of flair and a lot of imagination, but I think technically he looks extremely good too. And I keep saying this, but I just think at £17 million, Leeds have had a bit of a steal there. It was interesting to see his comments as well, thinking that he'd maybe been undervalued and that Wren were making promises to him. Uh, I think it was Moscow who picked this one up, wasn't it actually, in his his daily email that he does to our subscribers. And he he pointed out that Wren had said to him, there's 60 million euro we're looking at. And in the end, they took less for him than uh, they'd paid for him. I'm not sure he's 60 million euros, but I think certainly more than than 17. I mean, he he came from Sporting Lisbon and obviously it's quite common practice in Portugal as it was with um, Harry Sacco as well to have very big buyout clauses in virtually every contract which are quite often extremely unrealistic in comparison to the not necessarily the quality of the player but the position they are in their career you know the stage that, that they've reached you have players over there with buyout clauses of 75 million euros 100 million euros who are worth nothing of the sort my understanding of what went on at Rennes was that he was as happy to leave as they were to sell him. And it felt like in the end, all sides got pretty much what they wanted. I mean, I found it strange that having having signed him from Sporting for about 22 million euros, something like that. And I think that was the, the entire package. And then with him and the team got to the Champions League, that Wren were happy to take 70 million euros from Leeds in order to do the deal. I thought it would have been inevitable that they would have would have wanted a profit. And I was asking a couple of journalists over there, why, you know, why have they done this deal at, at this price? And and they said because basically if they get the money back on him, they'd be happy with that because they don't think he's been that outstanding. You know, they don't think he's been that incredible that they can expect to to make a killing on him. And, you know, the way it was explained to me, Rafinha had indicated that he'd like to go. Um, Ren pretty much said if, if we can get our money back, then then you can do. But clearly he, he is a bit aggrieved 
about what went on. And I would imagine he's a bit aggrieved by the tone of the coverage after he left. It did seem to be a bit like, well, good riddance to somebody who seemed to be pretty decent and seemed to have turned in some good performances for him. So one of those that I think further down the line, if it goes the way we all hope it will, you could look back and judge as a very, very weird decision by Wren. But then again, who's to say? funny to mention him in the same sentence as Hadi Sacco there. I've, having just praised Rafinha for the, how quickly he sees things, Sacco was often the last person in the stadium to see a ball, wasn't he? <laughs> he was, even though he was quicker than um, than Rafinha. Yeah, the old square it joke um, never never went away. But I mean, Sacco's buyout clause at Sporting was huge as well, you know, absolutely massive. Um, and in the end, I think Leeds paid about a million quid when they, they did that permanently. But I mean, it, it just is the way of things over there. So it, it can give players an inflated value. And, and like I say, I very much doubt that if there'd been a £60 million price tag on Rafinha, anybody would have considered paying it. But I do think Ren could have got more than than they they took in the end. Just while we tie up the Chelsea links, uh, news has broken today as we record this, Thursday lunchtime, that Trevor Birch is leaving Spurs, uh, director of football role, to go to the EFL as chief executive. Now, we should mention that that's not to be confused with Rick Parry, who is there as the chair of the EFL. So they will be working together. But... Trevor Birch will be known to Leeds fans as one of the many faces that came through the boardroom door post-meltdown or post one of the many meltdowns that we had. <laughs> the first meltdown. Yeah. You wonder when um, when Trevor Birch calls it a day and decides that he's going to buy a mansion in Lanzarote and retire, what clubs who desperately need a, a decent operator are going to do? Because he, he does... See, I know he's come from Spurs where he was director of football and Spurs are nothing like um, a club in crisis, not even close. But that has pretty much been his remit for a long time, going round clubs, including Hearts, where he was before the takeover in 2014, just just trying to help steady ships to push clubs through periods where they're either in administration or in desperate need of fresh funding or, or anything else. And he does seem to have a very good reputation in the game. I mean, I, I wrote a little while back about the tail end of the 03-04 season, around about the Wolves game, just referring back to the, the game in... 2004 with that evening post back page if Leeds lose tonight will the last person out of Ellen Road turn off the lights and I spoke to Eddie Gray about you know him agreeing to be caretaker of the second half of that season and and with hindsight Eddie regrets doing it you know he, he wishes that he hadn't because it didn't go well club got got relegated but he said the reason I did it was because I felt like I owed Trevor Butch he said Trevor was a good guy who was doing his best to try and keep everything together at Leeds he needed somebody to manage the squad Peter Reid had gone and I felt like I should do him that favour. And I think as you go around the leagues and you speak to people who've dealt with Butch, you don't hear a lot of criticism of him. I think people feel like he he does what it says on his tin, which is that he's going to come in and help and actually do his best to sort the you know, clubs or, or organisations as it is now out. And I would suggest that the EFL would be better off with Butch in position as chief exec than, than they would be without him. Or other people, maybe. He was the first guy who came in with what felt like an ounce of credibility after that initial meltdown, I think. Yeah, admittedly, he didn't have a huge amount to compete with, did he? But he seemed, he did always seem competent and I suppose fairly straight with people in a way that maybe no one before or after was either. He kind of laid out what was going on in a, in a very easy to understand way for people. So I remember people wanted him to stay at Leeds. It was obviously a very long time ago now, but I do recall people almost begging him to stay on as chairman. It interests me that he never really sticks anywhere, you know, not for a long period of time. You, you wonder if it, it, why it doesn't suit him to... Well, maybe he thrives on danger. Maybe this. Maybe he, he does, he, he, won't, yeah. he won't retire to Lanzarote. He'll go buy a nice little pad near a canyon and go bungee jumping yeah, every day. retire to yeah. Iraq or somewhere yeah. <laughs> somewhere like that. Yeah, but he does dot from, from roll to roll. And, and I know there's a piece on The Athletic about him which um, was written after he went to... To Spurs, or, or when he was about to take the director of football role, and and there was, um, you know, there's a lot written in that piece about Swansea, and and Swansea got themselves into all sorts of trouble. You'll remember the, the window where Leeds almost signed Dan James, where they they were selling everybody, and they were selling players or trying to sell players without any real thought about what it was going to do to the team, what it was going to do to longer term prospects, the fact that they were going to loan James to another Championship club. It had all become a bit bizarre, and and I think the feeling was that when he went into Swansea. He sort of knocked a few heads together and said, look, we've just got to be sensible about this. You know, if we need money and we, we've got to think about who we need to sell so we can bring the cash in because there are some quite valuable assets here. But ultimately, we, we can't sort of operate like this. It's only going to do damage. And, and, you know, if you look at their position now in the championship, they seem like they've they've settled down um, under Steve Cooper and they seem like they're in, in a, a reasonable state again. 
and I mean that can't be a bad thing for for the EFL to have him on board because there are going to be problems. There's going to be a legacy from COVID which is not going to go away quickly. And you would like to think that he would be as sharp as anybody when it came to kind of preempting them or, or trying to, to deal with them with hindsight. I was going to say, what on earth are you doing the AFL at the moment? Because more or less every club is get out of on, it. on the get, verge of bankruptcy. Get out, get out of it, get into the Premier League. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, and when you're in the Premier League, absolutely do not go back there. And one, one of the things that was said uh, about the AFL, and it was as if the penny finally dropped about this, was that it's a strange structure where you have a club like Leeds or as it was for a little while, a club like Villa in the EFL who have turnovers of, you know, in Leeds' case, £50 million a year, crowds of thirty-five to 40,000, capacity crowds as well and ambitions of promotion to the Premier League in the same members club as Southend or Macclesfield, the clubs who are operating on tiny budgets in comparison and, and whose kind of vision and, and outlook is totally off the scale in comparison. You know, there's just nothing... Nothing to, to equate between the two. And when Radrazani floated the idea of Premier League 2, it was kind of at a time where Leeds were meandering a bit under Heckingbottom and, um, and, and Christiansen, a poor season that hadn't gone well. And there was the inevitable reaction. And uh, I was no different really to think, well, maybe just think about sorting your own house out before thinking about re- rejigging the EFL. But actually, I think there is something to be said for Premier League 2 because the Championship or parts of it are so much closer to the Premier League than they are to the bottom of, of the EFL. And I don't know how much longer. I I don't really hold this idea that there are too many professional clubs at all. I don't I don't think that's true. I just wonder how much longer you can have a, a system where you do have, for example, Leeds and Macclesfield in the same in the same members club. It doesn't seem to me like something that can necessarily work um indefinitely and particularly when when financial problems come to bear. We're never going back there though, are we? Which is good I news. Thank, yeah, thankfully it's not a problem we'll ever have to deal with ever again. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Always a rich topic to discuss, Phil. Let's talk about Marcelo Bielsa. Who? Boss of Leeds United. He's going to stay forever. Hopefully he's going to stay forever because you feel like he's got a decent attachment to the club now. And uh, me and Michael, as part of our podcast, The Extra Ball for the Square Ball, we spoke to Angus Kinnear and you can get all that bit over on the, the Square Ball feed. Spoke to him about Marcelo Bielsa and his attachment to the club because... We all like to think he's going to stay forever. I mean, we've, we've discussed as well, Phil, haven't we? It'll be terrible the day that he leaves. What will we do well, afterwards? I hope he stays forever because there is never, we never run out of things to write about with Bielsa. It's the thing that gives me cold sweats in the middle of the night is uh, somebody else coming in who is thoroughly boring and, and doesn't inspire you in any way. And you're thinking, what are we going to write about this guy this week? Whereas with Bielsa, it is endless. A question I chucked at Angus when we spoke to him was how much it matters to Marcelo Bielsa, the love and the affection that the fans pour on him. And, Hopefully, whether it will have a bearing on him staying in future. I mean, it matters to him a lot. I think, he, although you know, he comes across as is entirely focused on the football. I think the relationship he has with the fans and the esteem they hold him and the love that they've given him and it's you know unconditional and so um, so obvious. You know, it's first for a start, it'd be impossible for anybody not to be affected by that. But but I know he is. You know, I know he I know he loves the club. He talks about it regularly. He talks about you know how much he's enjoyed his time here. And so I think that connection that we have. We talked about it when we first took over the club was we we felt that Leeds United wasn't united anymore. There was no, between the fans and the boardroom and the, and the players, it wasn't united. And I think under Andrea and Marcelo, we've managed to create that that unity. We've got, you know, the fans love the players, the players love being at the club, the players love the manager, the manager loves the fans, the manager's got a good relationship with the board. We've got a great relationship with the players. It, you know, it feels like, I was talking to you earlier, you know, it feels like a great Sunday league club. Not in terms of obviously stay on scale and stature and our ambition, but in terms of the relationships between people, we've got everybody pulling together, and you sort of get the feeling that if people weren't paid, they'd still want to be working for Leeds United. So you heard it here first. He loves us. We love him. He's staying forever. Excellent. That's that. I don't think anyone's going to compete in his heart though as much as as Newell's is because that was his first club. It's where he started out, and you've got a really interesting piece coming up this weekend, Phil, that I'm looking forward to reading. 
Uh, it's published on Friday, isn't it? And you are speaking to a guy who's called Fabian Costello. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think you're right about news. Although I have felt for a while that Leeds United and, and the city of Leeds are probably as close to news as Bielsa is ever going to find. I mean, granted, he is now 50, you know, 65 and you know, getting towards the end of his career. But it does feel as if this whole experience has probably touched him in a way that not much else will have done since he went from news. I suspect Chile um, and, and everything that went on there and the, the adoration he got is is similar as well. But yeah, Fabian is, as we suspected, will be true. Probably the only former winner of the Copa Libertadores currently living in Cork in Ireland. He's... Um, he works in engineering over there. He's he's in his fifties now, um, and he has um, he has Irish heritage. So his his family moved away, emigrated um, during the famine back in the eighteen hundreds, and and ended up in Argentina where he was born, and, and Rosario where he lived as as a young boy. And the interesting thing about Fabian, when we crossed paths and and got in touch with each other, was that he was a youth team player in what we think was the first youth team that Bielsa ever coached. Bielsa's first coaching position um, at Newell's Old Boys. It was it was nineteen eighty two, close to the, the start of nineteen eighty three, and um, Costello was uh, was sixteen years old. Bielsa at the time was was twenty seven, uh, and and as people will know, had been a player himself at Newell's um, centre back there in in the nineteen seventies. But not for long, and, and had retired at quite a young age, midway through his twenties, and, and then had had it in his head to to go into to coaching. And we had a long and really, really fascinating chat about his experience of encountering Bielsa for the first time, and and more than that, what he saw in Bielsa that gave very, very clear pointers about the coach that Bielsa was going to become, about what it was that made Bielsa different. And actually, really, really, really clear parallels between what Bielsa did as a 27-year-old and what he's still doing in his 60s with, with Leeds United now. I'm fascinated by the idea of a 27-year-old Marcelo Bielsa because he was, I mean, not to say that he's not now, but he was a very handsome young man, wasn't he? He had film star looks. He did, and I I think his methods as well, which it sounds like they, they've not changed a great deal in, the, in terms of the sort of innovative nature of them, how they would have come across as well from quite a young coach at that at that time and it would have been so different from everything else. Well, the way in which this, this worked was that um, the boys at News were sat down one day and they started to be split into squads. So the coach for the A team came in, picked the players that he wanted. Coach for the B team came in, picked the players that he wanted. Um, Fabian wasn't in either of those groups and was sat there thinking, you know, maybe this is it for me. Maybe I'm, I'm not wanted here. And then he talks about this young guy with very serious face walking towards these the kids who were left and saying I'm going to coach you and they were all pretty unimpressed because back in the, the early 80s the, the general idea or picture people had of a coach was someone who was like your dad so you know experienced and a bit of a I'm not saying this about either of your fathers but a bit of an elder statesman somebody who you thought had been around the block plenty and knew a lot about the game and they saw Bielsa in his 20s and, and were all a bit confused as to why he was coaching them and whether he was going to be going to be any good so on day one teams a and b are kicking the ball about as um boys liked it and you know just doing the usual things and bielsa throws a load of bibs down on the ground and says to squad c i want you to all start running laps around um, (laughs) these in 35 degree heat so the boys start to run and go round and round and they're sweating profusely and they're all pretty miserable about this and it gets to the point where they're watching the kids elsewhere having fun and kicking balls about and somebody pipes up the courage to say to bielsa why are we doing this? Why are you making us do this? And he said to them, those boys over there, you let them play. We're going to do this. And at the end of the season, we'll have beaten everybody and we'll be champions, which as it turned out was exactly how it went. And it was right at the start, but it was a great example of how Bielsa was different and, and how he did things differently. And actually it was the first in a, a long kind of learning experience of weird and wonderful things that he liked to do that the lads constantly looked at initially and thought this is mental like why are we doing this this is ridiculous but then after a while would find that it worked and that it all clicked in and it made them a better team and came out the other side realizing that that they were dealing with somebody really really special but also really unique and and way ahead of his time did the grow to like him as a person as well because that's one thing that i feel like it only really we only really saw the human side of him at the end of last season with the celebrations and things. Did did they get to see any of that with him? No, they they said he was very distant and, you know, there were boundaries there straight away. So they were used to coaches joining in in what Fabian called happy soccer. So you kick around, you know, just your fun games. Um, and Bielsa would be invited to play with him and would refuse. 
would make sure that there was there were proper you know proper boundaries between him and the players because he didn't want to to get too close to them. And again, the players didn't really understand this. You know, they they found it a bit aloof and they found it a bit odd. But as Fabian said, as you get older, you look back and you understand what it was all about. And because it started to work, you understood the point of it as well. It 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 all it all just felt right. So they would be used to a, a routine where before a game they would turn up with about twenty minutes to go before kickoff, and the coach would pick out the shirts with the numbers and hand them out and just say, right, go on, have a play. With Bielsa, they would turn up so early that the clubhouse was locked. Um, there'd be nobody there. He would want to go through endless amounts of tactical details and you know preparation for the game, stories to tell, things to, to pass across. He, he got into the habit very quickly of making the kids run hard for 10, 20 minutes before kickoff. And again, the players were saying to him, this is like this is stupid because we're we're wasting energy that we're going to need to use in the game. And he said to them, "Have any of you heard of lactic acid? No, never heard of lactic acid. Don't know what it is." And he said, "Well, what you'll find is if you run for twenty minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes before the game, it'll bring out the lactic acid, and then your muscles will release it. And once you get into the game and you start playing, you'll feel stronger, you'll feel fitter, you'll run further, you'll run faster." And Fabian said that it was absolutely right. You did, you know, you got into the pitch and suddenly you felt different. It, the way in which the, you, you sucked in the air was totally different. It felt better. You you felt like you were in physically better shape. And they had things like, um, as, as Fabian described it, total instep, which was a session where Bielsa taught them to kick with the bridge, the full bridge of their foot because you could kick the ball quicker and more in a more direct fashion than trying to curve it to a teammate. They had something called handball perfection where they basically played football with their hands, threw the ball to each other because you make fewer mistakes with your hands. But they also wanted them to move in the way that they would move as players. So your forward dropping deep, your centre-back coming out. And the whole thing was to almost forget a little bit about the ball because suddenly the ball, you know, the exchange of possession became easy. But to think closely about the way in which you positioned yourself on the pitch and how you moved, they did a lot of running off the ball, which again... They'd never done before and the players didn't understand to begin with, but Bielsa explained that the movement and you know rotation of positions made it very, very difficult um, for the for the opposition. And it, it just was a, a constant stream of, as Fabian said, you know, new ideas that kind of destroyed everything that had previously been in your head and, and took you from the old school of football into the new school. How did Bielsa get this job then from the outset at 27? Because that's still prime playing years, isn't it? Well, he'd finished and, and I think he had injury problems in, in his career and, and clearly had you know, a passion for this and, and wanted to do it. How he got the coach at Newell's, Fabian didn't know. And and the interesting thing is that um, nobody knew him. You know, when he, when he came to the boys and said, I'm going to coach him, it wasn't as if people were saying, ah, it's Marcelo Bielsa because Bielsa was not renowned in the city back then. He, he'd played for Newell's, but um, as it happened, Fabian's godfather, a guy called Alberto Carrasco was... Um, a bit of a legendary goalkeeper at, at Newell's. Um, so he knew of Bielsa and Fabian was able to say to him, who, you know, who is this guy? And he said, oh, well, he's a, he's a gentleman. He was a very sort of intelligent and correct player was how he described him, which was to say that he always took a lot of responsibility and tried to do do things right. But Alberto would say, you know, he's, he's not somebody you'll know because he, he doesn't have a huge reputation around here. But Bielsa obviously had it in his head that he wanted to get into coaching and he wanted to find an avenue to go down and, and it was definitely an outlet for all his his kind of deepest thoughts about football and his, his kind of passion about football. He, he sat the boys down one day and he said to them, how many times do you think you can score in a single game? So they, they sort of settled on kind of four, five, six, maybe six times realistically in a game. And Bielsa said, well, in my view, it takes one minute 35 to construct a goal. So on that basis, and in theory, you should be able to score 66 times in a single match. <laughs> And Fabian was saying that you know nobody else really thought like this and nobody could see why this was in Bielsa's brain, but it just seemed to matter to him. You know, this stuff was all really, really important. He sent them home one day saying, I want you all to bring a, a broomstick in tomorrow. And, and Fabian went home and asked his mother. His mother said, no, you're not having my, my broomstick. But his dad, for some reason, was able to, to gather 20 from a, a field near where they, they lived. And Bielsa was absolutely ecstatic when Fabian got to training with all these broomsticks and he went and got a hammer out of his citron and, and started smacking these broomsticks into the ground, a kind of rudimentary form of modern day mannequins. And again, it was to teach the players through circuits and different training sessions how to move, what to do in a game, how a, a game should be played out. And, you know, the other kids who were there, 
would look at this and kind of laugh and joke, didn't understand what it was all about. It looked a bit like a war zone, you know, with all these broomstick heads sticking up out of the ground. And it was just miles ahead of its time in comparison to what was going on. You'd had Minotti in the 70s who sort of tried to, to introduce more of a tactical ideal to Argentinian football. But Bielsa, you know, Bielsa took that and, and ran and just took it to a completely different level That and by doing things that at the time people just were not doing. I find it fascinating that listening to this, he almost broke it down and he still does to like mathematical or, or scientific concepts, which is, it's quite alien to football that really, isn't it? When we talk about passion and things like that, but you know, like if we run harder and faster and further than the opposition, we will outrun them, we will beat them, we will finish top of the league. We will have this much lactic acid in this time and your body will deal with it and then you'll be fine the length of time it takes to score a goal. It's fascinating how he views football. I love that. I think a lot of the notions are the same as traditional British things about you work hard, you run fast, you you get stuck into tackles and stuff. But he, rather than just saying it on the match day, he goes, but to do that, first of all, we do all this. And this is why. Which will take about a year. I think the difference is that He's not asking them to be physically fit so that they can smash teams off the pitch. He's he's asking the players to be ridiculously physically fit so that they can employ the technical aspects that he's trying to teach them right the way through a hard 90-minute game so that basically they they don't flag with 20 minutes to go. And so they, in theory, you know, we want to play like this, but actually we're not fit enough or we can't sustain it for long right the way through to the end. It's, it's the physicality that then leads you to play really good football and... Football that you can, as Leeds have, keep going for like two and a half years as it is at the moment. So what was your big takeaway then as a final point, Phil, from from speaking to Fabian? That what you see with Bielsa now is exactly how it was in the in the beginning. And it's not as if at some stage in his career, and we know this because we know the stories of Niels, but it's not as if he's had some epiphany at the age of 40 or 50 where he's decided to reinvent himself as this kind of, modern thinking and and inspired coach it was kind of there when he was in his 20s and you know how will anybody ever know without Bielsa telling you where where it's come from Fabian was saying that they used to talk to them constantly about Ajax you know and this is back in the 80s this is before the Van Hal period where Bielsa was really really into you know what was going on he was obviously fascinated by Ajax and their style of play and systems and everything else but it was Van Hal that tactically he really took a shine to you know, back in the, the early 80s, they would be training and Bielsa would say to the, the boys at Newell's, midway through a session, I saw this in an Ajax game, or this is what Ajax did in, in the game that they were playing. We're going to give it a try now. And the boys would all say, there's, there's no access to this stuff. You know, how does he know this? And how's he seen it? Because you would see the odd result in the magazine or, or on the telly. But in terms of actually watching Ajax, there was no... There were no sports channels, there was no coverage of European football and there was no comprehension of how Bielsa knew anything about these teams. And again, this is in the 20s, or in his 20s or 30s when he wasn't employed as you know, a coach with loads of money who could easily access stuff from abroad or, or could access it more, more easily than other people. He was obviously going to great lengths to to do that. And I mean, I like to say that that's not news in the sense that we know that, that he's always done that. But it, it feels to me a bit like the kind of genesis of Bielsa's career and the genesis of his ideas and his his philosophies and and it makes you realize how how long he's been building this for i mean you know almost 40 years and counting this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Updates then. We have an update on Jean-Kevin Augustin. We have an official FIFA complaint that has been submitted. Leeds are fairly adamant they've got a decent case in this one, though, aren't they? They they think uh, the legal position is, is fairly watertight. They're prepared for this as well. Leipzig said quite openly when this was all blowing up over the summer, um, and, and particularly in October when 
Augustine made that free transfer to Nantes um, that they would complain and they, they would seek compensation from Leeds. And yeah, we had it confirmed by FIFA um, on Tuesday, I think it was, that um, that an official claim has been submitted now by Leipzig and, and they essentially are, are looking for the money which they, they believe Leeds were supposed to pay during the summer without going over old ground because I know we've, we've addressed this before. It's going to come down to a question of whether FIFA believe that in good faith Leeds should have honoured the clause even though it technically expired because the clause was essentially meant to mean if Leeds were promoted in the 2019-20 season, which they were. But from a legal point of view, and this is what Leeds will argue, there was no requirement for them to extend the clause that was in there. It did end at the end of June, at which point they hadn't been promoted. And I think on a legal basis purely, I think they're on pretty strong ground, Leeds, and they certainly feel like they're on strong ground. Contractually speaking, there is precedent there that, for example, Jack Harrison's contract if you take it on a good faith basis, would have run on until the end of the season, but it didn't. It ended at the end of the season, June the 30th. So in order for him to carry on playing, they had to come to a new arrangement with Manchester City. And that that was, it's written down, it's documented. They, they were told by Manchester City, no, if you want him, you put it down on paper. And I think Leeds' position is that because FIFA didn't make a blanket ruling about this, because well, you can't really, can you? You can't unilaterally change the, the terms of legal documents and legal contracts uh, because FIFA say so, they can't impose that on everybody else, which kind of gives them a, a pretty good legal standpoint. Well, it's not even just the Harrison case. I mean, that's a, a good example of the way in which it will cost Leeds more money because they weren't able to, to activate it in, in the time frame that, that they had. Um, it, it will be slightly more expensive next summer than it would have been the summer just gone, and only by a couple of million pounds, but still, you know, more to pay than, than would otherwise have been the case. Even ignoring that, you had the issue of players who were out of contract at the end of last season, and literally no player was under duress to play without the contract or to extend the contract to the end of the season as was once COVID delayed it. You had issues, for example, down at Charlton where there were players who who didn't want to do that and refused to do that and didn't do that because they didn't want to risk getting injured in the way that, say, Gaetano Berardi did at Leeds. You know, they were looking after themselves. And the fact was that because the contract stated in black and white that it ended on June the 30th, that in law was was a fact. And, you know, it, it, the clubs were in no position to make any demands beyond that. They could ask players to extend their deals and they could make offers. So in the case of Berardi, he, he extended his. Bielsa obviously extended his contract too. Um, and, and you had the loans that were, were also allowed to run for a little longer. But all of that was done through agreements with players and clubs. And you're right, at no stage did FIFA ever say, you must honour these clauses. They, in good faith, you must accept that these clauses, even though they're dated, refer to the length of the season. And the reason for that is because they couldn't. Legally, it is not their right to say that. They can suggest it and they can ask clubs to, to do that in good faith, but they cannot legally say to somebody that your contract ends on June the 30th, but you have to play until the end of July. There's, there's literally no grounds on which to defend that. So I think Leeds' case will be will be very, very strong. The one thing I would say is that in the case of Spygate, for example, there was no rule at all preventing Bielsa doing what he did and the EFL managed to to nail him and Leeds down on the basis of a, a good faith clause. So whether or not that can be applied by FIFA, I'm, I'm not sure, but certainly Leeds are, are pretty confident that they'll be able to get out of this one. Does it display a degree of confidence from Leipzig as well that they've been willing to let the player leave essentially? Because as far as Leeds are concerned, he was their player. Is it a case of both clubs almost willing to roll the dice because neither of them want him? Yes. The reason that he went to Nantes and the reason that he was able to go was because neither club were um, admitting ownership of Augustine and, and FIFA were in a position where if they refused to allow him to transfer elsewhere, they would essentially be denying him employment and be denying him a, a club. And they didn't want to do that because there was no guarantee about how long the dispute between Leeds and, and Leipzig was going to go on. He was effectively without a home from the point at which um, Leeds declined to, to extend his loan. I think where Leipzig are concerned, they obviously feel that they're owed money and they feel confident enough about the case to um, to have taken it to FIFA. Although in the you know, situation as it is, it's very difficult to see how they could accrue any cash for him other than winning this case. And maybe they just feel that the, the cost of the legal fees involved are worth the gamble um, on the, the chance that, that FIFA do say, yeah, you know, you, you are owed money and, and Leeds should pay you some cash. But effectively, neither Leeds nor Leipzig wanted to commit to Augustine. So, you know, I've seen people say, well, if um, if Leeds lose this case, do they then take ownership of Augustine? No, they don't, because as far as they were concerned, they, they never owned him and they don't want to. And regardless of the fact that he might now be 
be worth cash. That isn't how it's going to go. And, and likewise at Leipzig, they didn't want him back. And that was, you know, one of the problems was that it wasn't a case of them saying, well, do you know what? This kid's actually got plenty of talent and, and a lot of potential. So we'll just we'll just have him back and we'll try and make the best of it. As far as they were concerned, he was gone from the point at which he went on loan unless Leeds had failed to win win promotion. But clearly Leeds didn't want to be lumbered with him with him either. So somebody is going to pay for him. I mean, it's either going to be Leipzig by virtue of the fact that he's gone on a free to Nantes and there doesn't, well, as far as we can tell, there doesn't seem to be any any promise of any cash from, from that avenue or Leeds will pay on the basis that they lose the case in some way and are, are ordered to pay compensation. Has he taken a pay cut and not doing it? Because, I mean, he as much as the transfer has fallen down a bit of a black hole, his contract will have existed somewhere with someone, won't it? And what's happened to that? I asked questions about that through the summer and nobody seemed to be able to, to answer it properly. You know, whether or not Leipzig were paying him, um, it definitely, as far as I'm aware, it definitely wasn't Leeds who, who were paying him. And then when he went to Nantes, it was a little bit difficult to establish the terms of that move because it came out the blue. And as far as we were all concerned, if he wasn't attached to Leeds, he was attached to Leipzig. You know, it had to be one or the other, but he seemed to have fallen into this grey area where actually, because neither club wanted to admit to ownership of him, he was effectively unattached and was going to be unattached for as long as as long as the process went on. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I would assume that when this all, all ends, and I don't think Augustine has submitted a complaint himself, but I would assume that at some stage he will probably be owed money by somebody on the basis that he had a deal at Leipzig and had also negotiated the terms of the contract that he was supposed to take up at Ellen Road. And that, you know, that is one way in which Leeds could get stung badly is if they are told that, that they have to... They have to not only pay you know money to Leipzig, uh, Leipzig, but also to compensate Augustine in the way, for example, that they had to compensate Cameron Stewart when they took him from Hull and did a permanent deal at the same time, but then backed out of it under Chilino. They had to pay Cameron Stewart well over half a million pounds, and you know clearly Augustine is on vastly more cash than than Cameron Stewart was. So there's a lot of finance involved in this. It's all just going to come down to which way um, FIFA's disciplinary department or you know arbitration department fall on it, but. Legally, Leeds seem to be on pretty solid ground with this. Those fizzy drink energy companies, they've got lots of money. They should maybe look at picking up the tab for this one. I'll tell you who will get rich, though. It'll be the lawyers. The lawyers will definitely get always, rich. Always, always. Two uh, more pressing matters, and that is West Ham at Ellen Road under our new floodlights on Friday. Uh, I guess the starting point for this, because we haven't broken off to do the Bielsa press conference today, because it was, it was yesterday, it was on Wednesday, because it's a Friday night game. We know the the starting eleven has been named. We know that our defence is shattered by injury. So let's start there, I guess. Then broken cock, damaged Lorente. Yeah, it it was funny actually. He was in great form yesterday. Was BLC. He was full of jokes. He seemed to enjoy the press conference, and we we got some great stuff out of him, which which was really ironic because the, the kind of opening gambit was yeah, um, Robin Cock expect him to be out for three months, and then it transpired that. Urente, um after I, I don't know if anybody noticed this, but as he um, and actually I don't think many of us properly clocked it either. But as Pulisic knocked in the third goal, Urente just kind of pulled up as he was was tracking back. And again, this goes back to what Bielsa was saying about not wanting to rush him and and hurrying back into the team. But clearly, Cox's injury meant that there was there was no option. But yeah, just casually said Cox out for three months. Yeah, Urente at least two weeks, um, but probably a little bit longer. And all in a day's work, as it often seems to be with. Bielsa, you sit there thinking, well, that's a blow and that's a, a little bit of a crisis in, in that position. But he was asked, you know, will you, will you do anything in January about this? Absolutely not. No, we've got Ailing, he can move inside. We've got Phillips, he, he can drop back. The players in the academy, you know, it's it's all good. We've got strike, not a problem at all. And I don't know, I, I, I don't think I've ever come across a manager who, it's not that he's blasé about injuries because he isn't. But I've I've never dealt with a manager who's just so matter of fact about them and just deals with them as if it's a, a minor kicking the teeth. Do you think in a weird way he almost enjoys the intellectual and coaching challenge of having to reshuffle things? I'd say so. Yeah, I think so. I think he does. I think he likes the idea that you lose a Germany international and a Spain international and you have to plug that gap effectively. But also, I, I think he feels that the preparation, not just through the week, but over months and seasons has been so good or, or so concerted that players should be able to just drop into the team. You know, so Strike should just be able to fit in because Strike knows what, what they do. And, and at academy level, you've got guys like Charlie Criswell and, and Ollie Casey who play in the same way, train with the first team from time to time, you know, are in that bigger circle. And likewise, if he if he had to fall back on them, I don't think it would be a huge 
concern for Bielsa. And you, you slowly get out of the habit of asking questions like how much of a blow is it to lose Koch and to lose Llorente? Because you know that in his head he's thinking, that's not really a blow at all. You know, it's, it's crack on. I'm pleased to see Rodrigo is back in the starting eleven. I feel he's too good to leave out at the minute. And I know there are no sacred cows when it comes to Bielsa's starting eleven. On a personal level, I, I love what Rodrigo brings to it. And I fancy I fancy him for a goal on Friday. Yeah, well, we'll run through the team because Bielsa gave us it in full. He, he was asked, are you going to keep West Ham guessing about who you're going to play at, at centre-back? Ho, ho. And so it's your it, challenge, Phil, to pick the one who's going to get injured between now and then. This is I will do my best. Yeah, here we go. So the team will be, because um, he, he, his answer to that was just to name as a living in the way that he got into the habit of doing, particularly post, um, post-Spygate. Um, so you've got Medley in goal. It's going to be Dallas at right back, Ailing and Cooper in the centre of defence. So Ailing in the same position that he was um, at Villa, which I, I still think actually was his best performance of the season so far. Alioski on the left, Phillips in defensive midfield. And then the midfield four of Rafinha, Cleek, um, Rodrigo, Harrison and Patrick Bamford up top. So no great surprises there. And I don't imagine Moyes would have really struggled to have picked out, picked out that 11. But as you say, Rodrigo back in there, which I think was inevitably going to happen at some stage. I think he was always going to find a way to to push his way back into the team. But I'm with you. I, I think he's looked so classy in the games where, where he's had concerted time on the field. I think he, he looks looks like a really, really quality forward, elite forward. Um, and I think I think in the longer term, Leeds are going to be a far better team with him in the lineup than without him. We've got a lot of lefties in this side as well. Uh, Melier's a lefty, Cooper... Alioski, uh, who else have we got? Rodrigo, Harrison. Rafinha, Harrison, Bamford. Bamford. Absolutely. It makes me think of um, the, the win at Huddersfield uh, last season where I sat in the press conference afterwards and listened to one of the Cowleys talk about the fact that and, and bemoan the fact that on that day they hadn't had a left footer in the team as if it would have made a, a huge amount of a huge amount of difference. But you're right. I mean they are they are pretty loaded in that sense. And 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 it helps to give them a good bit of balance. It means that on the left hand side that you know the players do lean towards that side naturally and, and likewise on, on the right hand side the more more sort of right footed. Um so yeah, I think I think good line up that one. I do like how the Cowleys have just been relegated to one of the Cowleys in the same way that they're like Jedward. I, th- I think it. I think it was Danny. I think it was Danny. But I was. I wasn't really listening. I just. I just became aware after about five minutes that he was still going on about the absence of of left footers in the team, and I was thinking about the difference that would have made as Leeds tore from one end of the field to the other, and Hernandez headed in at the back post. Are West Ham any good? They are having what has been purported to be a decent start under David Moyes. But if we beat them, then we go level with them. I can't decide if they are. I watched the game against. Manchester United and the scoreline was a, a pretty ridiculous reflection of what had gone on for for most of the game and and it was it was almost a classic example of the massive bluff that is Solskjaer over there and and the fact that he's just hanging on and hanging on and hanging on and, and that these results and little spells of twenty minutes come round every now and again just to to help him out they played pretty well I have to say and they, and they did look fairly fluent and they seem to have gone from. The perception that a lot of people have about West Ham, and this has been floating around for a couple of years now, that they're kind of one season always or or one little bad spell away from getting relegated. It's always felt as if it's going to come and knock on the door at West Ham eventually. And and actually, they've moved into a position where they look altogether more stable and, and more competent. I mean, the, the thing that Bielsa pointed out, and he's, he's right here, is that they do actually have a lot of attacking options. They have quite a, a steady like back six, back seven that, that can keep things tight. But they do have a lot in attack. You know, they have they have players to choose from there. They're not necessarily hugely outstanding players by Premier League standards, but they will score goals and, and they will cause problems. And I think they're going to be a mid-table side, surely, West Ham. I, I don't see them as, as being any more than that. But I would say that already, having wondered this season whether this might be the year when actually it, it all falls apart and it all and they get properly sucked in, they they're looking like they'll they'll be mid-table at worst. So if they are quite attacking It'll be interesting to see how they square that particular circle with Bielsa's leads, knowing that we're so open and so attacking and so physical, whether they stick to their usual game plan and perhaps leave themselves open, as we've seen other teams do, or will they try and sit and and play us on the counter? Well, they go three at the back, um, which will not be anything particularly new for Leeds. You know, play plenty of teams like that. What you did see in the closing stages of the, the game against Man United was how able Solskjaer's team were to catch them on the break and to punish them with pace and, and with through balls. And, and that's something that, that Leeds will 
equally do effectively, I think, if West Ham give them the chance to play. I suspect one of the threats to Leeds is going to be set pieces. There clearly is an issue there and Bielsa spoke about it again on, on Wednesday. He's, he's not really trying to deny that they're, you know, they're kind of substandard when it comes to defending them. What he is trying his best to say is that we do work on these and we do try and make ourselves better. But, you know, they, there is height in that West Ham team. They they are pretty good from set pieces. That that will be a danger. But I think if the game's wide open, it will certainly suit Leeds as it usually does. Who's the referee on Friday? Am I right in thinking it's Michael Oliver? Is that right? It is Michael Oliver, yes. It's a computer, Phil. We all know it's a computer. Well, I, the reason I asked and I brought it up is because the refs and um, as an extension of that VAR are having such an influence on the outcome of games at the minute that um, I was just sort of curious who it was and what their style is and, and what the algorithm that sat in Stockley Park is going to do to us on Friday. Oliver had the Merseyside derby, which obviously had the incident between Pickford and Van Dyke in which, I mean, I was going to say has been one of the more sort of baffling moments VAR-wise this season, but we'd, we've got a big catalogue already and we could add the, the sort of Pervader challenge to that as well. But I'm not sure you can pin that one to Oliver particularly because it, it appeared that VAR did review it. They didn't think there was anything in it, although the the messages about that seemed to be mixed um, as well. He um, he took charge of the game against Liverpool Anfield as well um, at the, the very, very start of the season. And clearly there was the odd decision against Robin Koch early on, but that was before the handball rule was changed. And I think by the letter of the ridiculous law, that was the right call as much as nobody could really believe it. As I recall, he, he had a reasonable game that day. I don't think he, he was terrible. And I have to say that I always think Oliver's one of the more decent refs, generally. I, I, none of them are ever perfect. And I think these days you're more open you're more open to criticism than you've ever been because there's such a there's such close scrutiny on everything that's that's going on. But he's certainly a very experienced ref and, and the sort of guy you'd expect to get this sort of game. Made me laugh when we spoke about Chelsea for last week's podcast and we sort of said, oh, you know, we, we might just sneak something out of this. And then we closed the mics and stopped recording and went, yeah, I think we're going to get beaten. <laughs> Stamford <laughs> Bridge didn't dare commit to, to negativity on, on the actual recording itself. So let's be honest about this one and West Ham and the way that we think this one's going to go. Given the news Phil brought us earlier, I think a 66-0 win is possible. Great. Possible. Yeah, absolutely possible. It's mathematically possible, but what is going to be possible in the real world? I don't think we'll keep a clean sheet, but I think we might win. I'm going to go for like a, a 2-1. It's exactly what I was going to say. I do think they, they will concede again, possibly from from set-piece, but um, I reckon the game will be open enough for Leeds to do damage if they play well. I'm going to continue riding on the optimistic horse and go for 3-0 leads. We'll get an early goal. They'll be dispirited when they're 2-0 down for half-time and then we'll just finish the deal in the in the second half, midway through the second half. And in fairness, I don't think when we switch the mics off today we'll be saying, hmm, not shit about this one. There was something about Chelsea, wasn't there? Like you, you wanted to be optimistic because of the way Leeds had played, but the more I thought about the individual players, Giroud, Kante, right the way through the team, the more you realised that it was going to be difficult to go there and just shine it feels like we've overcome a lot this season with the system we play and the amount of running we do but then Kante runs as much as any Premier League player ever more or less and then you saw James looking really good and Giroud and as much as he missed chances Werner his movement up front and it was and half a billion pounds worth of other talent and it yeah, does and it does sort of pay doesn't it Kante's sensational when he plays well as well I mean that's what that's the the sort of bracket you're moving into now and, and as you hopefully you progress and you get better and you qualify for Europe I mean look at Ren getting into the Champions League all of a sudden you're in the remit there of Ronaldo, Messi and so on and you start getting involved in games where you're playing against the, the best of the best and and I thought Kante was really clever on Saturday I thought he was able to adapt as it went and he was able to read the way the game was going and read you know what he needed to do to make you know to make the midfield tick and, and that's you know there's a Premier League title winner and somebody who's right right at the top of the midfield ranks in, in his position so yeah it, it was always likely to be one of that game and I don't see the same quality in West Ham's team who did you pick as your one to watch against Chelsea? It's completely slipped my mind. I picked Giroud. I was saying I wondered whether or not Lampard would be able to leave him out of the team after his four goals in Europe and he didn't and obviously Giroud scored and was a right pain in the neck all the way through the game. Played very well. Oh, so it was a stopped clock occasion when you yes. finally got it right. Yes. What, what about Friday night then under the lights at Ellen Road? Who's it going to be? One to watch. Or oh, what is it going to be? It might not be a person. It might be an issue. Well, at the risk of them both getting injured in the next 24 hours, I think the most interesting thing will be Calvin Phillips against Declan Rice. There seems to be this weird trend developed with international football of 
everyone in the England squad having to be pitted against somebody else in the England squad. So if it's not Phillips against Grealish on the basis of inclusion, it's Phillips against Declan Rice on the basis of who's better and who should be playing in their position, even though their position doesn't really seem to exist in Southgate's back 11. And, you know, the, the, it's, kind of, it's kind of weird. I feel as if since Phillips has gone into the squad, there's just been this constant discussion about should he be in there? What about this guy? You know, and I know that's how it goes with international selection, but it, it just feels like a, a kind of odd odd setup where you've got, I mean, you, you saw the, the videos of Grealish and Phillips um messing about with each other and, and training and it was quite nice to, to see because they must feel as if they've been set up for a fight in the car park even though neither of them are particularly interested in fighting Phillips, each other um, in the car park Phillips you know? wins that one by the way of course he does yeah. I don't want yeah. I don't want Phillips mixing with him either no he's, <laughs> he's a nice lad is Calvin <laughs> don't speak to the don't speak to the rough boys <laughs> but but if if say for the sake of argument we were to get into a scenario where England start playing 4-1-4-1 or started playing with one out and out holding midfielder, you know, in the in the way that Bielsa does, you would be looking at Phillips and Rice being, you know, right in contention for that role. So very, very keen and intrigued to see the way those two play, if they both start, and to see who who it is that's able to quarterback the game better. The answer there to all of them is Calvin Phillips. It probably is. Let's hope so. Uh, don't forget to get your hands on the perfect present for the football fan in your life with the Athletic subscription. If you get one for yourself right now, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. Details at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.